Hello and welcome to Platwoods Church Online. My name is Evie Martin and I'm the lead pastor here. It is good to be together today. Have you ever eaten out at a restaurant with um, a self-serve soda machine and watched kids go up to it unattended by their parents? My kids don't get a lot of soda, so on the rare occasion that I let them get a soft drink at a restaurant, it's like Christmas and birthday and Easter Bunny all rolled into one. They forego the ice because, well, ice occupies space that a sugary carbonated drink could occupy. They reach up on precarious tiptoe and usually go straight down the row of beverage options, mixing everything from orange Fanta to root beer all into one. And then, with no regard for the journey back to the table, they top that cup off. Because as far as they know, this could be the last time that Mama ever lets them drink soda. Every last ounce of liquid that can fit will fit until surface tension is the only thing, keeping the syrupy goodness in its container, barely. They maximize the laws of physics in order to get their cup full to the brim. And then they teeter back toward the table, inevitably spilling soda all down their hands, dripping onto their shoes, and ultimately plopping the whole mess down so that they can slurp it up jubilantly. A full to the brim cup of root beer is enough to make any parent cringe because it's going to spill over. But that truth of anticipating an overflow is exactly what we're tapping into in this sermon series. We're counting on something that is full spilling over. Because when it's not soda, when it's the love of God, the grace we all long for, the openness of God's arms and forgiveness, that's a spill we can handle. It's one we need. Through Jesus' words and stories this month, we hear the themes of God's abundance, God's longing for us, God's expansion of love. There is more than enough for every soda cup, for every heart we could ever want to fill. Today, the story we'll hear is probably a familiar one to many. It comes in a sequence of three parables about lost things. In Luke chapter 15, we first read about a shepherd who has lost a sheep. He leaves 99 others and goes to find the lost one. And then we read of a woman who has lost a coin. She turns her house upside down, cleaning every nook and cranny until she finds what was lost. And each of those two stories is fairly short. But then the trilogy concludes with this parable about a father and his two sons. I'll begin in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, if you're following along in your Bible, because there it gives us the setup, the reason that Jesus is telling this particular story. All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and the legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them? So here, Jesus has an audience of sinners and tax collectors on the one hand and Pharisees and legal experts on the other. And they are calling into question the company that Jesus keeps. Tax collectors and sinners are not on the approved guest list for any gathering that religious experts want to be a part of. 
Jesus is not acting like a good religious leader. So he tells the story of the lost sheep and then the lost coin, and then he dives into this longer story, again in Luke chapter 15, but starting in verse 11. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Soon after, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There, he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death? I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Story doesn't end there. There's one more part. Now his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, Your brother has arrived, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, Look, I've served you all these years, and I've never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. If you've heard this story before, you probably know it by a particular name. Many English translations of the Bible give it a subheading with a word that we don't use much anymore, prodigal. 
This story is widely known as the parable of the prodigal son. And what does prodigal mean? It means things like extravagant, wasteful, lavish, illogical. The son was prodigal with his inheritance in his escapades in a foreign land. But to name this story for just one of its three characters does us a disservice, I think, because someone else is prodigal in this story. Someone else is extravagant, wasteful, lavish, and illogical too. Who is it? It's the father. The father is just as prodigal as the son is, but he's prodigal with the celebration he ignites as his son returns. Pastor and author Tim Keller wrote a book on this parable and famously titled it, The Prodigal God, making the case that the point of this story is not the extravagant, wasteful behavior of the younger son, but the extravagant, wasteful, illogical grace of a God who unceasingly welcomes us back. There's a different subheading for Luke chapter 15 in the translation that I've used today. It says nothing of prodigal anybody. Instead, it labels these three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, as occasions for celebration. Because at the end of each little story, is a party. The shepherd says, celebrate with me because I found my lost sheep. The woman says, celebrate with me because I found my lost coin. And the father says, we must celebrate because this son of mine was lost and is found. When we think about the context in which Jesus is telling these stories, we realize that he's defending his own parties. He's been accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. The religious experts have criticized Jesus' dinner parties and who and how he chooses to celebrate. So this story of the prodigal son, the prodigal father, is a direct defense of the guest lists for the kinds of parties God likes to throw. If this story is familiar to you, you've heard it a hundred times, or if this story is brand new, I'd like to explore it today looking through the lens of celebration. The lavish, illogical, extravagant kind of celebration that overflows out of the heart of God for us and invites so many others to join in. I mentioned that this story is a parable and a parable is a specific kind of teaching story. It isn't meant to have a singular meaning. There are layers upon layers of meaning. There are surprises and oddities intended to pique our curiosity. And there are layers of perspective because there are multiple characters. And I always invite people in reading parables to stand in the shoes of not one, but all of the characters of the story. Because we almost always will find pieces of ourselves in each one. So I'll invite you into the younger son's shoes first. And for each character as we go along, I will center a celebration question. So the younger son question is this. Do you know you are celebrated? My younger son this week came home from a random Target trip during which his father agreed to buy him a package of 12 cheap plastic 
party favored trophies? Why, I asked, and Laz, my son, replied, to celebrate. Celebrate what, was my question. It's Monday night. That it's 39 days until my birthday. I laughed out loud because A, his count was wrong. It was actually only 32. And B, because my son obviously knows he is celebrated and I'm 100% okay with that. But the younger son in the parable didn't know that. At least not until he came home. He was at the bottom of life and he dug his own hole. He knew it. He had gotten himself in his own predicament and he saw nothing left in himself that was redeemable or forgivable. He had treated his father with disrespect and then he lost everything. He was hungry and penniless. He may have been battling an addiction. He had lost his center. He had probably lost his faith. His only justification for returning home was an economic one. He wasn't seeking reinstatement into his family. That seemed so far beyond the realm of possibility. He was simply seeking employment, servitude. He was just trying not to starve. Celebration of himself, of his life, of his belovedness was nowhere on his radar. And as he stumbled along the dirt path, his hunger clouding his vision, his clothes hanging in shreds from his frame, his feet bloodied with his sandals long gone, he hears a shout. He squints, straining to focus his eyes in the glare of the sun. He sees a figure running toward him at full tilt. The man's head covering flies off, disregarded. His robes gathered up around his waist so as not to slow him down. The shouts grow louder, hoarser, and the son knows his father's voice before he can even see his face. He falls to his knees, unable to take a step further, and weeps as his father makes up the distance between them and scoops him up, kissing him, neither one of them uttering a word, neither able to. Finally, the son fumbles over his confession and his plea to return as a servant. The father will have nothing to do with that, and his instructions for the celebration begin. The younger son wasn't certain he'd even be allowed on the property. He never imagined he'd be the honored guest at a lavish feast. He didn't know he was celebrated. Do you know you are celebrated? Whatever hole you're at the bottom of, whatever pickle you've gotten yourself into, whatever you're addicted to or afraid of, whatever lies you've believed about yourself, whatever mistakes you've made or monotony you've lived, however empty your heart or far away from God you feel you are, a simple turn toward home is all it takes. You don't have to make it to the front gate. You may crumple up in a ball on the path, but there is a feast awaiting you. There is extravagant grace and celebration with your name in lights. You are welcomed to a party at full tilt. 
Don't wonder if you'll be allowed back into God's heart. The truth is God never let you go in the first place. And so the party is for you. You are the guest of honor. You are celebrated. The father's shoes are the next we get to put on. And the question he poses for us is this. Do we celebrate what is found? The father's reaction is surprising to us, or it's supposed to be. The father runs. First century Jewish patriarchs didn't run. It wasn't becoming or befitting of his status. The father doesn't wait for the son to make it all the way home. The father doesn't reside in anger or indignation over the disrespect that he has endured. He doesn't demand an explanation or even an apology. He embraces before any words can be spoken. There is nothing but love exuding from this father. The son barely ekes out his own confession before the father has orchestrated the butchering of their best calf and invited the whole neighborhood to come feast and celebrate at a prodigal party. Wasteful, illogical, extravagant. And he expects them to come and celebrate. This child who didn't deserve it, not by parental standards, not by neighborly standards, but the father has no time for reasons why not to celebrate. He can only think of reasons why. My son who was dead is alive. This child of mine who was lost is found. The father's first inclination is toward celebration. Do we share that inclination? Do we keep our eyes on the horizon, looking for those children deeply loved who are wandering and lost? Do we wrap them up in an embrace without a word so they know they are loved? Do we remember the party God threw for us and start pulling out the red carpet and the best wine and the plastic trophy party favors for the son or daughter or child who doesn't expect to belong in our midst? Do we have within us the inclination of the father to celebrate the friend who is struggling, the neighbor who is alone, the child who has turned their back on us but opens the door just a crack? Are we ready, even eager, to celebrate the person who doesn't look like us, doesn't act like us, doesn't even believe like us, but has turned their face toward God because the world has continually come up short? Are we waiting for people to meet our expectations first? Or can our hearts overflow with prodigal grace to welcome in the person who rejected church or the person the church rejected. Do we celebrate what is found? We are the hosts. We can be the throwers of the parties. We can say in our families, in our circles of our lives, even especially in our church, you are celebrated here. You are family here. You were never gone from our hearts. And so now this party is for you. 
finally, the older brother enters the story and we get to put on his shoes for a moment too. The question he presents to us is, what keeps us out of the celebration? Here's a character many of us can sympathize with. He holds to clear lines of what is right and what is wrong, what sort of behavior deserves, what sort of reward. He's done what he's supposed to do. He's stayed by his father's side. Many scholars agree that the older son was the embodiment of the Pharisees Jesus was speaking to in this story, those who kept the law, who followed God's commands, who never stepped out of bounds. The older brother has remained connected to the family. He's always been in, never wandered off, never turned his back until now. In this moment, when his brother returns, when his brother is found, older brother now becomes the one who is lost. He stands outside the house, looking at all that is going on within. He hears the story of both his prodigal brother and his prodigal father, and he just can't stomach it. His mind can't make logical sense out of this celebration for a sibling beyond forgiveness as far as he is concerned. Dad comes out to swoop him into the celebration too. Older brother is furious, the verse says, and didn't want to enter in. The party is here. You are here, the father seems to say, but you are not in the party. What is keeping you out? Will you hold so tightly to your own sense of righteousness that you can't pick up an hors d'oeuvre and ask your brother where he's been? Will you stand so firm in your anger and not move across the threshold of the house that is already yours? Will you allow your disgust to extinguish every last ounce of love I have poured out over you in the years you have lived under my roof? What is keeping you out of the party? It would be even more joyful if you would join in. When we stand in the older brother's shoes, we have to reckon with our unwillingness to celebrate, however that presents itself. Where do we hold grudges against those who are seeking a new start? Do we cross our arms and dig in our heels when someone who has wronged us finds a welcome with others? Who does not deserve a second chance in our minds? And what are we going to do when God gives them one? Will we stay outside and fume? Or will we let the prodigal grace that doesn't make any sense and feels like altogether too much, sweep us up into the door to the party too. Do you know you are celebrated? Do you celebrate those who are found? And what keeps you out of the celebration? The invitation of the prodigal God to the prodigal party is for both brothers. And truly, it's more than either deserves. But that's the whole point. It doesn't matter how wretched or disagreeable we are, or how perfect and put together we think we are. 
God absolutely delights in us and celebrates us. The more we let ourselves be swept into God's ridiculous and illogical celebration, the easier it is for us to throw parties for others. And the more we throw parties for others, the more joy spills out over the brim and uncontainable into a world that is lost, wondering what it feels like to be found. Will you pray with me? God who runs at full tilt toward your children, even when running is not respectable, we can't begin to imagine the magnitude of your celebrations, except that we catch glimpses of them around us in an act of deep forgiveness, in the pure joy of singing together, in a church welcoming hurting people. We don't always believe that we are the ones you're running toward, ready to throw a party. But today, in this place, in this moment, May we give in to your embrace. May we enter into the rejoicing you make over us. May your celebration become our celebration of all who wander and wonder if they are alone. In the name of Jesus Christ, your prodigal grace for us. Amen.